BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Northern California is not only the best place to live, it is also a vast hydraulic machine. Our fleet of reservoirs capture water falling from the sky or melting out of the mountains. Those dams keep Sacramento from flooding as it did regularly during the 19th century, and the waters they impound get flushed through the delta and then pumped to points south and west for use by humans, fish, and in agriculture. As these storms continue to pound our state, we check in on that vast waterworks of our region and consider whether there might be other ways of dealing with the waters when they come. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. You know, with climate change, I thought we were in a drought or deluge kind of situation, but it turns out it's a both and. We can have these enormous damaging storms and our reservoirs and groundwater reserves can remain unfilled. As of right now, there's not even a guarantee that this string of atmospheric rivers will bring a technical end to our current drought And yet we've seen some serious flooding for days and days along different rivers around the area, most seriously in Northern California along the Russian River in Sonoma and the San Lorenzo in Santa Cruz and a lot of other flooding down in the southern part of the state. Joining us first to talk about this weather whiplash, we're joined by Dr. Michael Anderson, state climatologist with the California Department of Water Resources. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Uh, Good morning. Happy to be here. So we saw some really terrifying and remarkable footage yesterday from Ventura County, Montecito, all along there, as well as uh, in Santa Cruz. What areas of the state are you concerned about when it comes to flooding as we look forward? Uh, Well, we have that region, which experienced uh, just a steady stream of rain uh, with some really incredible rainfall totals over the past 24 hours. Like 15 inches in places? Uh, yes, over 15 inches in places in the mountains behind Santa Barbara. Um, we've also had uh, just over the past 15 days a whole lot of rain in a lot of places in the state. We're seeing some places uh, achieve a new flood of record, uh, one of which is the community of Merced uh, in the San Joaquin Valley, uh, as well as some of the streams that are on the west side of the San Joaquin Valley that normally don't have a whole lot of flow in them. Uh, the other area of concern is in the Monterey Bay region. A number of the rivers in that area are flooding and are expected to continue to flood for uh, the next few days. 
What can we expect uh, meteorologically in, with this next round of storms? I mean, it seems like what we're on atmospheric river five now. We, you know, are going to get six, seven, well, eight. Yeah. Believe it or not, um, we're finishing up six here. Uh, oh, three more to go. Uh, the next set of storms coming in, we get a little bit of a break after today for tomorrow. Tomorrow evening, the next one rolls in. More focused um, Sonoma County and north, mm-hmm. uh, which definitely is a help for the folks in Southern California. Uh, that one's a duration one with a, each individual day, not a great deal of rain, an inch to an inch and a half versus three to four inches. Uh, so what we see is we don't see the big flood peaks, but we start seeing the system remaining at high water. So an example would be the Russian River near Hopland will hover right around flood stage. So even when the water's receding, they're still right around that threshold for a flood stage. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about how unusual it is to have this many atmospheric rivers heading into the state. You know, in our previous shows, we've talked about El Nino years, where maybe this pattern might be a little bit more ex- expected versus this year, which is La Nina year. Um, talk to us a little bit about that. Right. So, you know, we have it in our heads that, and certainly over the last couple of years with La Nina, it means drought. And that happens when the high pressure parks offshore and diverts everything north. Uh, this year, uh, being the third straight year of those conditions, as we moved into the new calendar year, uh, the Eastern Pacific started warming up. Uh, not quite reinforcing that high pressure as much. That allowed that stronger jet to push through and has been pushing through over the last 15 days. Where does that put us? Well, this gets us up in the record books. As I mentioned, we have some new floods of record. Uh, We're looking at 15-day rainfall totals that are getting up there in the record books. Uh, Had a note from a colleague in San Francisco who sent out saying for San Francisco over the past 15 days, they're now up to third place all time behind only 1862, which is right. uh, the, great the, storm. the flood, yeah. <laughs> and then 1866. So uh, that's the neighborhood we're operating in. Wow. You know, had this kind of pattern been predicted by climate modelers, or has this series of storms kind of changed the way that you think about the possibilities for our state's long-term climate situation? I'm sorry, can you repeat that, please? Yeah, sure. I mean, was this something you expected? Did you expect to see, you know, a La Nina year with a bunch of atmospheric well, rivers because the climate modeling said that was a possibility? Or is this kind of a new no, thing? So, well, when we saw that there was a chance for um, conditions to be transitioning to neutral in the first part of the calendar year, this happens to coincide with the peak AR activity climatologically for California. So you get... The notion that things might be getting interesting in January didn't know interesting would be quite this extreme. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about the drought. Um, we are still in a condition of drought, right? At least according to most definitions. Um, by the time we finish out this string, this string of atmospheric rivers, um, where do you think we'll be in terms of drought in the state? Well, it'll vary. Uh, we have a great big state, uh, and locally, your water's managed locally. So each water system has its portfolio of sources. Smaller water systems probably got their fill and then some with these storms. Mm-hmm. Larger uh, projects, and we'll talk about the two big ones, Oroville and Shasta, 
are still trying to recover storage. The depletion of those reservoirs was so great that even gaining half a million acre feet still leaves them with another half million to a million acre feet to recover before they get back to where they would be considered average for this time of year. Hmm. That's incredible. I mean, how do we think about the snowpack that's come in, right? In some places, it's sort of near all-time highs for or above for, for this date. I assume that's largely good news, but are there scenarios in which it's not? So um, after a series of really dismal snowpacks, um, it's nice to see one of the bigger ones. As you get into the extremely large snowpacks, then we shift to another flooding concern that'll come around during snowmelt season. If it comes down too quickly, that leads to a new set of flooding concerns uh, for the Central Valley areas that rely on that snowmelt for their water supply. Yeah. Talk to me a, a little bit about the longer range forecasts that you see, like as we look out, you know, we've had years in the past where we've had a ton of uh, precipitation, both uh, snow and rain, and then we've had these incredibly dry beginnings of the calendar year. Um, how how does that look right now? Well, um, there's a lot of uncertainty right now because you're in a transition period. So no real clear climate signal that says, hey, expect this. Uh, what we will probably see is this interplay between that high pressure and that strong jet and alternating which is impacting our weather at the time. Right now in the weather models in that week two window, we see that high pressure reestablishing and allowing things to dry out a bit here. Um, but beyond that, whether we get into February and get another round of uh, storms like this uh, remains a possibility. Yeah. We're talking about weather whiplash, how California is experiencing both flooding from atmospheric rivers and a drought that set new records for the lack of steady rainfall and water. We're joined uh, by Dr. Michael Anderson, state climatologist with the California Department of Water Resources. And we'd love to hear from you as well. Have you experienced flooding during these storms? Are you concerned about flooding? Has it felt different to you or in some qualitative way? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it's KQED Forum, and the emails forum at kqed.org. Going to add a couple of other uh, guests to our conversation who are going to take us through the rest of the hour. Erica Guys, author of Water Always Wins. She wrote the recent New York Times essay, California Could Capture Its Destructive Floodwaters to Fight Drought. Welcome, Erica. Thank you. We're also joined by Jay Lund, Vice Director of the Center for Watershed Sciences at the University of California, Davis, also a professor of civil and environmental engineering. Nice to talk with you again, Jay. Glad to be here. Jay, I'm going to start uh, with you, which is, I want to pose the same question I did to Michael Anderson. Does this series of uh, of storms change the way that you think about kind of the long-term water picture in California? Uh, I think it's a reminder of things that we, most of us already know, that California has floods as well as droughts, and we have extremely high variability, and, and as some people have been calling it whiplash between wet and dry period. So even within uh, a drought year, we can have floods. And certainly this uh, last few storms have, have really been demonstrating that. Yeah. 
Erica, how, how about you? I mean, is this um, thinking about winter water in this way? Is it uh, changing the way that you think about California's water picture? Uh, I agree with Jay that, um, you know, we're used to flood and drought uh, swings in California. And um, I think, uh, you know, it's a reminder that we have an opportunity to capture this water uh, to a, a greater degree. And a lot of that has to do with our, our development choices. Mm-hmm. Michael Anderson, state climatologist, what do you want people to take away from, you know, this uh, next 10 days or so as we get to the drier period that we're expecting, you know, January 20th onward? What should people really be expecting? Well, there's two views to kind of hold at the same time. One is the near term, what's happening now, being mindful of extremes like this to really pay attention to those weather forecasts, pay attention to emergency responders that are there to look out for your health and safety. Um, As we move into a drier period, be mindful that the longer view, a water year view, uh, an extremely wet window versus a broader drier spell is be mindful that that may not cure all the challenges that have been set into place. And so maintaining that conservation mindset that Mm -hmm. um, these are extremes that have to be adapted to and they can come uh, one on top of the other. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. I know it must be an extremely busy time for you, Michael Anderson, state climatologist with the California Department of Water Resources. Thanks so much. Thank you. For the rest of the hour, we're still joined by Erica Guys, author of Water Always Wins, as well as Jay Lund, Vice Director of the Center for Watershed Sciences at the University of California, Davis. He's also a professor of civil and environmental engineering. And we're going to take your calls. Are you in Sacramento, Guerneville, Capitola, Santa Cruz, places that have been hit really hard uh, during the string of atmospheric rivers? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, KQED Forum, and the email is forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We are talking about weather whiplash, how we're both getting this flooding from atmospheric rivers, and we remain in a drought. 
We're joined by J-Line Vice Director of the Center for Watershed Sciences at the University of California, Davis, as well as Erica Geis, author of Water Always Wins. She also wrote a recent New York Times essay, California Can Capture Its Destructive Floodwaters to Fight Drought. Um, Jay Lund, let's kick off this segment with you. We know we're still in a drought. We know we need water. Why don't we have more systems? And this is a question I get from people all the time when we've been talking about the weather. Why aren't we capturing more of this water? Um, for a couple of reasons. One is we also like to have some water for ecosystems. And so on a few occasions, even with these storms, we're trying to release some water and manage our water for ecosystems. And the other is because these storms are a little bit unusual and it's not very economical to build very capital intensive projects where you have to pay, pay them off every year when you only get water from them every few years. Uh, and so that's always a trade-off you have to make economically. Yeah. And so you see the system that we have for capturing water in our dams and, and other things as largely a sort of rational, functional system. Um, not entirely so, <laughs> but, but uh, um, it does have, it does perform fairly well. Uh, I would certainly, you know, there's certainly a lot of improvements that should be made, could be made, um, and will need to be made over time, certainly with a changing climate. Yeah. Erica, guys, do you have a, a different view of this, or do you see the way that the California water works uh, move, you know, both protect our cities from floods, but also move water from north to south? Is fundamentally sort of okay, or do you think there need to be large changes to the way that it works? Uh, yeah, I do have a different point of view. Um the California is representative of the dominant culture around the world more broadly in that it has relied on intensive engineering to try to control water. And the people that I follow in my book, um, who I call slow water practitioners, are instead trying to collaborate with water to a greater extent. And one of the things I learned in my reporting is that you know, globally, we've had a really dramatic impact on the natural water cycle uh, with all of this engineering, um, with our urban sprawl, industrial agriculture, and the concrete way that we try to manage water. So just a few stats. You know, globally, we have drained 87% of the world's wetlands. We've uh, interfered on two-thirds of the world's large rivers with dams and diversions, and the area covered by pavement in our cities has doubled just since 1992. So in all these ways, we're preventing water from doing what it does. And on a lot of places, that's the slow phases where it can slow on the land and sink underground to refill that uh, underground storage. So I would argue that there's a lot less capital things, less capital intensive ways that we can help water uh, move into the ground once again. Yeah. I mean, Erica, sticking with you, in practice, what might that look like? I mean, in your New York Times piece, you note that there is a particularly uh, permeable section of land near Sacramento that might be under, might you know, become developed and paved over, and all these different kinds of, of things. So, how would that be used in this kind of slow water way that you're kind of talking about in order to e capture water for groundwater recharge as well as you know prevent flooding of those areas? Yeah, there's a lot of different uh, ways of doing that. The area near Sacramento is called the Paleo Valley, 
um, which is an ancient river just under the surface that is filled with porous uh, cobble, so big rocks and sand. So water can move through it very quickly and go underground very quickly. But there are also things like floodplains. Floodplains exist to absorb floods. And <laughs> we have instead levied up rivers right along the edge of the water um, and cut off rivers from their floodplains. So, I mean, California does have a policy now of setting back levees. That means putting it back toward the, the back of the floodplain and allowing the river access to it in, in some places. So that's one strategy. And then in cities, there are a lot of things we can do to uh, get water into the ground, whether it's... Um, you know, rain gardens or bioswales, which are vegetated ditches that can absorb stormwater, um, you know, things like medians and tree bump outs, green roofs, permeable pavement. Yeah. You know, Jayland, um, you have studied this water system for, for a long time as well. I mean, how do you see some of these um, these strategies for managing water in, in new ways? I think they're very nice. Um, in some cases, they, they turn out to be pretty worthwhile. Um, we, we have two problems. Uh, one is supply, where we either have too much of it, as in floods, and not enough of it, as in droughts. And the other side of it is demands, where we have really overdeveloped our water resources. And, and this is something I, I think you alluded to earlier. We probably just the quantity of water we overuse has led to a lot of groundwater overdraft, particularly in the south, southern part of the Central Valley, mm -hmm. to the tune of about two million acre feet per year. Um, I don't think we can we can um, make up some of that deficit with uh, recharge of floodwaters as has been, as is often proposed, uh, but maybe only about ten or fifteen percent of that. Uh, Mostly, we're going to have to reduce our demands. Yeah. And I mean, when you say that, what you really mean is following agricultural production, right? Yes. Uh, we, we can, agricultural water use is 80% of human water use in the state of California. Um, it's uh, in those places where we have the groundwater overdraft, it's overwhelmingly because of, ground, of groundwater pumping for agriculture. Yeah. I remember talking to you about 10 years ago, Jay, and you saying basically like, you know, it seemed like there were basically two basic uh, ideas that would go into fixing California's water system. One was fouling a bunch of agricultural acres, and the other was allowing more flexibility between different water systems, right, so that they could trade water with each other more effectively. Yes. Uh, trading water around uh, is a good way of making sure you get the most economic value, the most jobs out of uh, what water you do have, but we're going to have to reduce the amount of water that we use in order to, to make that balance work. Yeah. All right, let's uh, go to the phones. Let's first um, come to Santa Cruz. Uh, Kristen in La Honda, welcome. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, I grew up in the Santa Cruz Mountains near La Honda, and I still live up here, just with the exception of a few years out of state for school. And you know, as a kid, I remember, you know, major droughts, meaning, you know, we had to, like, do Navy showers or shower with a bucket and, and major storms, you know, on the flip side, you know, no power for weeks and no road access for weeks or even months. Um, and now, you know, currently we've had more days without power than with power over the past couple of weeks. And I think a lot of people 
seem to have forgotten, like those that were here. But there's also been just such a high turnover in the state that people just have never seen this, you know, who've moved here. And I guess to me, the silver lining of our community is that we really come together during these times. We help each other out, you know, digging out culverts and, um, you know, diverting flooding with sandbags. And it's just it's nice to see, you know, people kind of pulling up their bootstraps and contributing to those communal efforts. But I hope that people remember this and kind of make some make some efforts, you know, both towards, you know, sort of the, the small piece of their own world, as well as contributing to, you know, hopefully diverting some of the catastrophes of climate change that make these things worse. Yeah. Hey, thank you so much for that call, Kristen. Silver silver lining to some of these things. Um, let's go uh, straight to uh, Eric in uh, Ventura County. Welcome, Eric. Yeah, hi. Thank you. I have some concerns with respect to the massive flow that we have coming down the Sacramento River and now spilling into the Yolo Bypass and the fact that uh, state pumps are running at maybe 20%. And we'll continue to because of the first flush regulations, which I understand. But here we are in an epic drought. And we have 25 million folks dependent on this system. And that's the best we can do. I'm, I'm really concerned that with wetter wets and drier dries being the projection over you know, the next few decades, if not in perpetuity, that we got to be more nimble. And uh, we're being hamstrung. Hmm. And it's to large degree self-inflicted. I'd really like to hear some feedback hmm. on that. Eric, th- thanks for that. Um, Jalen, I'm going to come to you to provide some context on this. And some of the context I'll provide for folks is there are big pumps, literal big pumps in the Delta, uh, which can pump water to points south. Um, and there are some fairly complex rules and regulations um, based on a variety of factors that govern how that water and how much of that water can be pumped. Um, Jayland, can can you talk a little bit about first set the table for us about how that system works, and then maybe address uh, Eric's question about whether we should be using those pumps at higher capacity. So there's about fifteen thousand cubic feet per second of pumping capacity in the southern part of the Sacramento San Joaquin Delta, and that's the primary water supply for the Central Valley project and the State Water Project that sends water all the way down to. San Diego, uh, but also importantly supplies a lot of agriculture and, and much of the Bay Area actually, uh, Santa Clara Valley and Alameda. Those pumps are not allowed to pump at full rates very often for two reasons. One is when there's not enough water flowing into the Delta, there needs to be at least about 4,000 cubic feet per second of outflow from the Delta to keep the salt water out in the San Francisco Bay and not have it come in Mm -hmm. and make the water that's pumped out of the Delta and used in the Delta salty. Uh, That's not the problem today. (laughs) That's the problem during the drought. At this time, my understanding is that the reason they're not allowed to, to use that full pumping capacity is because of regulations on internal flow patterns within the Delta. If you pumped at full full bore uh, uh, today, you would be reversing the flows in the delta mm. uh, that would pose some harm for fish. And so that that they have a ratio between export and inflow that uh, affects how much they're allowed to pump. And apparently that and they have, cannot have so much reverse flow in the delta that would 
lead uh, fish in unnatural directions into the pumps. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, Eric, that is, uh, I, I assume there's people who'd like to change that uh, ratio and uh, pump things. Yeah, I, and I think that's a, that's fair game. I, I, you know, those, that general pattern of regulation was established some time ago. Um, as the science is accumulating, I, I think there might be some, um, some thought behind how that might, those kind of regulations might be adjusted to allow you to export a bit more water. Certainly the water exporters have been looking to build uh, tunnels or bypass canals or mm -hmm. peripheral canals for some decades now, um, which has proven to be a little controversial. Yeah. The, uh, the, the, First, uh, Jerry Brown's father, Jerry Brown, and uh, Jerry Brown again uh, tried to do that with uh, little little success. Um, let's bring in Callie from San Jose. Welcome, Callie. Thank you. Thank you for taking the question. Uh, my question is on uh, rainwater harvesting and uh, groundwater recharge, um, basically to uh, counter flooding as well as to prevent drought by uh, adequately recharging the groundwater table. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the speakers mentioned that it is capital intensive, but I'm curious to know whether uh, we already do some kind of uh, groundwater recharge um, and uh, whether we could do more, maybe at a individual houses level or at a community level, because uh, uh, from what I have heard from other parts of the world, there are cities which uh, were drought-prone, but they were able to uh, do such uh, groundwater recharges uh, and turn a flood situation to their advantage. And uh, also, in terms of uh, non-flooding, they had uh, better water tables. Uh, mm -hmm. So they ch changed their course in a matter of years uh, by doing better rainwater harvesting. Yeah. Kelly, what a great question. And um, this is, I believe, one of Erica's favorite topics. So, <laughs> Erica, guys? Yeah, um, I, in my book, I cover uh, communities in Chennai, India, and also in the Andes Mountains of Peru, who have for um, you know more than a thousand years, uh, two thousand years, have captured the rainwater that comes uh, to bridge long dry seasons, and you know this is an ancient technique, and you know a lot of decision makers in um, kind of mainstream culture tend to be dismissive of this uh, approach. But in fact, it's really a question of scale. You know, what we're talking about is distributed approaches rather than centralized management. And so this is many, many small places across the landscape for water to move underground that cumulatively adds up to a lot. So it's similar to the idea of how solar panels on everyone's roof can add up to a lot of electricity. Um, so I think that uh, the other thing is we tend to have a very kind of single-minded problem-solving focus when we're thinking about water. You know, we see it either as a commodity or a threat. It's all about human needs, and it tends to ignore the larger systems. But in fact, there are many, many co-benefits to this approach. You know, it can, at the same time, absorb flood, uh, save water for drought, uh, store carbon dioxide, provide habitat for you know, important critters that keep these systems functioning. So um, I, I do believe that uh, it requires a kind of a change in our mindset um, from 
you know, thinking of water from human needs. And I, I know California does have environmental requirements, so I, I don't want to dismiss that. But to a large degree, we are looking to kind of maximize water for ourselves. And just one thing about that, um, agreeing with what Jay Lund said, um, there really is a demand problem. And there's a field called sociohydrology that looks at how water and humans interact. And they have documented again and again, when you bring more supply from somewhere else, uh, you increase demand. It's like how you know you have gridlock, you build more lanes on the freeway, and it attracts more traffic. And the last thing I'll say about that is it's an environmental justice issue. There was a 40-year study looking at dam interventions on the world's rivers and found that they brought water to 20% of the world's population, but decreased water availability to 24% of the world's population. Mm. So it's something to think about. That's interesting. One of our listeners, Warren, uh, writes in to uh, agree with you, I think, Erica, um, says, can you discuss how cities such as Singapore capture two-thirds of the water that falls in the city for reuse? Los Angeles also has an aquifer, and I advise the L.A. Department of Water and Power on a pilot in 2015 for recharging that aquifer with filter strips along municipal parking yards. These should be more common options. What is a, what is a filter strip? Um, as I understand it, it's uh, basically a permeable area. So it might be one of these bioswales, basically um, a place where there's not pavement and mm-hmm. the water can seep into the ground. I think there's some of those uh, actually just here in the mission in San Francisco. Yeah, um, they're spreading. Yeah. Um, we're talking about weather whiplash, how California is experiencing both flooding from atmospheric rivers while we remain in this drought condition um, some actually still severe drought condition in many places and with a lot of unfilled reservoirs. We're joined by Erica Guys, author of Water Always Wins. Guys wrote the recent New York Times essay, California Could Capture Its Destructive Floodwaters to Fight Drought. You can Google that and, and read that. We also have Jay Lund, vice director of the Center for Watershed Sciences at the University of California, Davis. He's a professor of civil and environmental engineering there. We're taking your questions both about capturing rainwater and how this, uh, how our systems could change around our relationship to water, and we're hearing your experiences of these storms and floods. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum, and the email is forum at kqed.org. Another listener wrote in to tell us about a water capture system in Australia, saying, In Australia, there's a booming business in providing 1,000-gallon storage containers buried in the yards of single-family homes. Homeowners can capture water from their roofs and use it for toilet flushing for with some minimal replumbing. We should be doing that. Also have a bunch of other uh, questions coming in that we'll get to after the break about all this rain. Um, (laughs) I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the state's hydrological system as we're both experiencing flooding from atmospheric rivers as well as remaining in this drought condition despite this incredible string of atmospheric rivers. We're joined by Jay Lyon, Vice Director of the Center for Watershed Sciences at the University of California, Davis, and Erica Geis, author of Water Always Wins. And the subtitle, I think, is right, um, Thriving in an Age of Drought and Deluge, which is uh, what you're experiencing right this very minute. Um, Let's uh, bring in some more callers. Uh, Let's first go to Hari in Fremont. Welcome, Hari. Hey, Alexis. Happy New Year. Thanks for the program. Uh, my first point is not to minimize hardships people are facing. I have a leaking back door, which I won't be able to fix because I have to pay taxes, but I digress. Uh, I love the rain, and yesterday I spent an hour and a half driving 680 from Dublin to Fremont Mission Hills, and it's so beautiful and soulfully refreshing to see the green hills back. Yeah, It's really, really nice. This is the Bay Area I moved into, and uh, I'm hoping that this just continues. Green is powerful. Uh, brown is the new green and all those tags we used the past couple of years to justify uh, not being green. You know, they're all out of the window and I hope the green continues. <laughs> happy. Just wanted yeah. to share that. Uh, yeah. And the second point really quickly is also, Erica mentioned about Chennai in India where rainwater harvesting is done. Uh, my father did it in our house. It was a combination of political goodwill as well as community leadership that happened in the town and many places in Chennai. And we have a 30-foot well in a single-family home, which was dry for decades on hand. But after we implemented the rainwater harvesting, the well just, you know, it it had water and it had continuous supply even during the drought years. So I think it's time California thinks about it and takes it seriously. And those are my points. Hari, what a great call. Thank you. Uh, Thank you so much. I have to admit, I also love the the green and and lush hills. And I... um, hope the water falls in such a way that it minimizes flooding and maximizes the the beauty of the hills. Um, Jaylen, I, I wanted to ask you, you know, since we're talking about this rainwater harvesting and we're talking about some of these decentralized versus centralized solutions, um, as Erica was talking about the sort of uh, metaphor of the solar panels, I remember, you know, in, in, in researching renewable energy, that oftentimes the attitude of people who were well-established within the energy industry was sort of like, yeah, solar panels are nice, but, you know, if we're serious, we need this, you know, we need the heavy iron. We need these centralized facilities. Is that how you feel or do you or is water different? Is water a place where we actually could implement decentralized solutions that 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 meet the scale of the problem, let's say? I think all these things help um, in their proper place. So and the way to just decide, at least from an engineering perspective and from a from a practical perspective, is you have to sort of do the numbers. How much water is there available? How often, when and where? How expensive is it to store, to gather up, to, to use, to treat? Um, how does that compare with alternatives for getting water or getting energy? And, and as the technology changes, your decisions, your mix of, of alternatives is going to change. So I, I just try to keep a very uh, straight-faced look at it 
um, and uh, and look at see, to see what seems to make sense economically for the for the well-being of society. Because if if you spend money poorly, uh, then you don't have money left over for other things that we value, like uh, medical care, education, things like that 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 we all value. You know, another question though. I mean. Uh... Many times uh, when I have encountered that that precise uh, way of looking at it, you know, where we, you know, we're going to denominate this all in dollars, then the the battle kind of tends to shift to like, are you capturing all the things you need to capture within those financial calculations? Right. Earlier, we heard Erica talk about the sort of co benefits that might come from sure. some of sure. these other things, and, and those are important. You know, we 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 treat wastewater not only for economic reasons; we do it for environmental and public health reasons and aesthetic reasons and just you know moral reasons as well. So it's not that that economics is the only thing that's important, but in the in the long run you have to make it work economically pretty close. Yeah. Erica, do you want to jump in on that? I, I would argue that the a key problem with our dominant economic system is that it does not value these um, other issues that are outside the immediate human uh, environment. So there are many ecosystem services that are provided to us by healthy systems, such as clean water, uh, supply of water, uh, you know, pollination, food for us, etc. And those are external. They're not counted in the way that we look at our, our economics. And as a result, it's allowed us to dramatically degrade them. And the way that we've been doing things has worked to a point. But we're hitting that tipping point now, and it's partly an issue of population, which, you know, just passed 8 billion. It's partly um, due to overconsumption, and then it's partly due to the way our economic system is structured that really is geared toward making the rich richer as opposed to making life sustainable for all of us. And we do see examples of that, for example, in California agriculture. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, bring in some more callers. Steve in Los Altos, welcome. Hi, can you hear me? Yeah, sure can. Go ahead. Oh, great. So I uh, recently read something, I believe, um, and I hope I got it right. I think some geologists have discovered some like hidden geologic formations coming out of the Sierra foothills that, were, I hope I'm describing it well enough, are kind of hidden uh, subsurface uh, gravel, rivers, mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Very poor. I was wondering, and that seems like we could get the river um, excess flows to these areas, and that's part of the problem. They don't always exist right where the river is. That right. You'd be able to recharge the groundwater table. Can the can the guests uh, comment on that? Yeah, Steve. These are the the Paleo Valleys, <laughs> um, and maybe you know, Erica, just so, to explain them a little bit to people. How how do these form, and why are they so useful? And then the sort of second part of Steve's question is. How do we get the water to them? Yeah, these were formed by the the ice ages, and there are a number of them um, under the floor of the valley of the Central Valley along the eastern edge. Um, the ones that are probably most useful to us are the most recent ones that were formed about 18,000 to 10,000 years ago. And basically, during the Ice Age, the rivers had a lot of power, and they cut these really deep canyons in the Central Valley. And then later in the glacial cycle, they filled with this very porous material that was kind of scoured by the glaciers, so rocks and sand. And actually, one of Jay's colleagues, uh, Graham Fogg, 
has been really intrigued by these paleo valleys for about 40 years, and he's been trying to get people more interested in them. And now that people in the state, um, I mean, groundwater recharge has happened in California in some places like the South Bay, uh, Orange County for 100 years, but there's definitely more widespread interest in it now. And so the Department of Water Resources has undertaken um, an airborne survey to try to find, I mean, they're studying groundwater systems more generally, but also to try to identify where these are. Some work out of Stanford um, has also, by Rosemary Knight, a geophysicist, um, has also tried to uh, show that this technology can map these features. In terms of getting water to them, uh, you know, they were formed by the ancestors of today's rivers that are coming down off of the Sierra Nevada. So, in fact, there are a lot of rivers that are pretty close to these paleo valleys. So it's kind of a matter of land use choices and setting aside that land for recharge. And there probably will be um, some new infrastructure required uh, to kind of go that last mile to get um, water into the Paleo Valleys. And I think it's also possible, uh, you know, that snowmelt, um, Michael, the state climatologist, was talking about, uh, you know, potential flooding from snowmelt later. Um, that could also be a source mm -hmm. of recharge for the Paleo Valleys. Mm -hmm. Let's uh, go back to the phones. Um, Bruce in Piedmont with, a, with an interesting question. Yeah, hi. Um, in 1928 and 29, there was a plan in California to build a dam across the Carquinez Strait. That would have prevented the saltwater intrusion up the delta, and it would have uh, fish ladders to allow the fish to migrate, and it would have provided a lot more water uh, for agriculture down the Central Valley. Um, the plan uh, was scuttled in 1929 when the stock market and the bond market crashed because it couldn't be funded. And I'm wondering if your guests have uh, any knowledge of, um, <clears throat> is there any plan um, and are any people thinking about uh, reactivating that plan for a, a dam across the Carquinez Strait? Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks so much, Bruce. Um, Jayland, um, this would be kind of more of a, mega engineering approach, uh, mega, mega engineering <laughs> approach to uh, drop yeah. a dam across the Cartina yeah. Street? Well, you know, there's sort of a saying among people and in, in water people in California that almost every place in California has been considered for a dam at some point in its history. <laughs> and, and and this is certainly one of those examples. The, the, the plan uh, is actually very worth reading. Uh, it was the state water plan uh, of uh, 1930. Um and it proposed a, a dam, not at Carquinez Strait, actually, but but down by Benicia. Mm. Um, and it was they did an economic analysis, actually, and decided that the cost of the dam at the time uh, it was much more expensive than letting some extra water out to sea, um, because that would not pro cause problems for ship traffic mostly. Mm. Uh, it would also, if you built a dam there, it would have flooded all the Delta Islands. Or many of the Delta Islands. So wow. there, were, there were a lot of other problems with that solution. Wow. I, probably it's best that we didn't do that for a whole bunch of environmental reasons. Yeah. You know, Jay, I wanted, um, since we're talking about the Delta Islands, um, I also know that you've done some work looking at the, the levees there, right? Because for people who are not familiar with the Delta, it's one of the greatest places on Earth. It's such a fascinating set of... Lovely you know, place. Lovely place. And it's also been, you know, we created all these levees. It used to be in just a, an estuary. Um, and so now there's all these islands with like tons and tons and tons of mud levees, right? So what are the concerns right now 
uh, Jay, about those levees because they're, you know, old and made of mud and maybe not up to the current conditions? Well, uh, certainly as the sea level continues to rise and many of these, of these islands are continuing to subside because they're old peat soils and that peat is oxidizing and, and essentially evaporating up to the atmosphere with tremendous carbon dioxide emissions, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, it, that is one of the major unsustainable features of California, but alas, not the only one. Yeah. And are you worried about them on a on a flooding level as well? Like that, that these oh, yes. levees are just like, you know, difficult to maintain? Uh, well, we have about uh, you know, dozens of these of these subsided islands. Um, and of course, when you have a land lower than the water level, uh, it makes the, the reliability of the levees very, very important. Um, as you mentioned, the, the peat, the soils are made out of, the, the levees are t often made or, or have a foundation of peat. Uh, and so that makes them a little bit less stable over time. Uh, the, the levee engineers, I have, have to give them credit, they've done very well with these conditions, but there's still some pretty high unreliability of, of those mm -hmm. levees, particularly as, as the sea level continues to rise and as the uh, land continues to subside. Yeah. There are two kinds of levees, water people say, ones that have failed and ones that are going to fail. That, that's <laughs> right. right. That's right. I mean, and, and, if, and if you're already underwater, um, you know, below sea level, then, then it's more worrisome. People sometimes ask me how to how to keep those levees going. I say build Amsterdam there because that's what the <laughs> Dutch civilization has essentially done, where they, they, they have their major cities at those low elevations because they had no other choice. And so they're willing to invest tremendous amounts of money to keep those levees. They designed for the one in 10,000 year event. Wow. Which, of course, may not actually be one in 10,000 years anymore. Um, well, 9,000, 10,000, who's counting? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, when we think about a place like that, we think about what's going to happen to the Delta. Um, Eric, I mean, what do you see as like the long term future of that place, right? I mean, are, are all those levees going to be maintained? Will that eventually be? Reflooded. I mean, there's there's towns there. There's people. There's history. Yeah, it's hard to imagine how the delta can continue to exist in its permanent. I mean, in its current form, um, in perpetuity. Uh, as Jay pointed out, sea level rise is um, significant. Uh, you know, there's already salt water that pushes up. And, you know, flows are generally used to, to push that out so that some people's water supply isn't salty. Um, and they also have a little, um, uh, you know, kind of temporary dam that they bring into play sometimes. Um, but, yeah, I mean, these these islands, I, I always laugh at that term because, in fact, they're, they're sinkholes. You know, they're like 25 feet below the level of the levees. Um, so, Yeah. It's uh, and, and, you know, any type of levee, even with concrete, can fail. Water can undermine it. It can come under the bottom. So, um, yeah, I don't think it's... Spoken like the author of <laughs> Water Always Wins. <laughs> um, uh, Jay, you know, uh, listener Lisa writes in to say, in 2014, California voted on building water storage to capture these heavy rainy seasons, uh, referring to, I think, Proposition 1 of 2014, which one of our producers notes uh, dedicated $2.7 billion for investments in water storage projects. Um, did that make an impact? Did that have a, have a dent? No, not very much. Um, you know, two, 
$2.7 million billion does not go as far as it used to. <laughs> um, and if you had built all of those projects that were proposed, you might have expanded the total storage capacity, surface water storage capacity in the state by about 10%. And, and maybe got an additional 1% of water deliveries out of it. So it's actually not a very efficient way to expand water supply. In some cases, it's, it's better, you know, there, there are, but um, we're not going to construct our way out of these droughts or out of the flood problems. You know, Jay, when, every time I've, I've talked with you, um, I'm, I'm struck by the idea that things, I don't think you expect things to change radically. Is that true? Um, physics and economics and human nature and game theory are, are pretty hard to move. Yeah. And I mean, this, but, and we have the system but, but we have, I have right? To we, also yeah. admit, I have to also admit, we've made some tremendous improvements in the 30 some years that I've been working in, on water in California. Hmm. So um, we, we get, we've reduced urban water use per capita by a tremendous amount. That's been very helpful. Southern California is not, the Southern California cities are not using more water now with a much larger population than they did 20 or 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Our, our, our ecosystems, however, are, are really in sad shape and we really need to figure out how to engineer those systems to be more successful because we can't let them go back. We, we, if we just abandon them, they're not going to go back to nature. Uh, in the way we would like. Right, they'll just collapse. We have a lot of invasive species that will just take over. Yeah. I think um, it's true that the extent to which we have uh, altered the ecosystems is is dramatic <clears throat> and filled with problems. But the idea that we need to dramatically engineer them to improve them, I, I would take issue with that. There are a lot of studies showing that in many cases, you know, obviously the devil's in the details, but if you give an ecosystem space and if you give it the ingredients that it needs, it can, uh, to a large extent, repair itself. Um, obviously, invasive species are can, can be a big issue. Yeah. In many cases, that's true, but, yeah. but not, a, not, yeah. in, not in all not in these cases. Yeah. We have been talking about water, water everywhere. Uh, how we handle flooding, how we capture rainwater, living in this world of deluge and drought. We've been joined by Erica Guys, author of Water Always Wins. She's got a New York Times essay out about how California could capture its destructive floodwaters to fight drought. Thanks for joining us, Erica. Thanks for having me. And we've been joined by Jay Lund, Vice Director of the Center for Watershed Sciences at the University of California. Davis, thank you so much, Jay. Thanks for having this segment. Earlier, we were joined by Dr. Michael Anderson, state climatologist with the California Department of Water Resources. And thank you so much for all of your calls and questions. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.